The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Give me the drink, man. Straight up, Will. Give my friend a beaker of your best brandy. Kit. How goes it, Will? Wonderful, wonderful. Burbage says you have a play. I have. And the chinks to show for it. I insist. A beaker for Mr. Marlowe. I hear you have a new play for the curtain. Not new. My Dr. Faustus. Ah, I love your early work. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? I have a new one nearly finished and better. The Massacre at Paris. Good title. Mm. Yours? Romeo and Ethel, the pirate's daughter. Yes, I know, I know. What is the story? Well, there's this pirate. In truth, I've not written a word. Romeo. Romeo is Italian. Always in and out of love. Yes, that's good. And Tilly meets. Ethel. Do you think? The daughter of his enemy. The daughter of his enemy. His best friend is killed in a duel by Ethel's brother. Or something. His name is Mercutio. Mercutio. Good name. Will, they're waiting for you. Yes, I'm coming. Good luck with yours, Kit. I thought your play was for Burbage. This is a different one. A different one you haven't written? Okay, that's Joseph Fiennes as William Shakespeare and Rupert Everett as Kit Marlowe, a.k.a. Christopher Marlowe in the movie Shakespeare in Love. It's a tantalizing scene capturing the energy of Elizabethan London, and although it's completely invented, in some ways it's perhaps less speculative than some of the other theories that have attached themselves to Christopher Marlowe. The movie, in showing a young Shakespeare wrestling with his plays while Marlowe seemingly has a confidence and ease Shakespeare does not yet have, is a plausible scenario. The two probably did meet. The world of London theatre was not that large. They were exactly the same age, practically, two months apart. And Marlowe was a celebrity, a highly successful playwright, and Shakespeare, even before his fame as a playwright, was an actor. They were in the same world. But Marlowe was a scholar and a spy and many other things besides. He was a heretic, he was a brawler, he was possibly or probably gay. He was an atheist, maybe. He was a counterfeiter, maybe. He was called a rakehell. He seems to have courted controversy, and he was on trial, and he had dealings and double dealings with a wide range of shadowy figures. Eventually, he was killed in a brawl in a tavern after spending the day with three companions, two of whom were spies, and the third, the one who purportedly stabbed Marlowe with a knife above the eye, was being swindled by one of the other spies. The coroner's report, found in 1925 by an enterprising scholar, gives us many details about that day, but it raises as many questions as it answers. We do know this. Marlowe was 29 when he died, and he was ahead of Shakespeare, more successful, viewed as more gifted and innovative, there's reason to believe that Shakespeare, as we know him, would not exist without Christopher Marlowe. We can only imagine the body of work that Marlowe might have left us had he lived into his 50s. 
There are two great questions we wrestle with when it comes to Marlowe. What happened and what if? We'll look at both of those today as we dive into the life and works of Christopher Marlowe on the history of literature. Here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining me. I'm so pleased that you enjoy my new sister podcast, Smart People Doing Awesome Things, also known as the Smart Awesome Show. And I hope you all check it out. While I'm selling fish, might I add a bit of gratitude toward all of my patrons and encourage you to visit the site patreon.com literature, where you can donate a few dollars if you can spare them. Help us keep the show running here. As it turns out, running these shows is not a costless endeavor. There's a reckoning, and as we will see, those reckonings can be deadly. So here's what we're going to do today. We'll look at Christopher Marlowe, who he was, and what we know and what we don't know about his life. We'll talk about the plays he left behind and where they fit in the history of Elizabethan tragedy. We'll spend some time on the evidence that he was a spy and the mysterious circumstances of his murder. But really, as you're probably used to by now, I have a different set of questions as well. Really, I want to know why he's important. What is it about him that makes him so compelling? And how should we view him today? So, let's dig in. Marlowe was born in Canterbury in early 1564, just two months before Shakespeare's birth. He was born into a similar social class. Shakespeare's father, of course, was a glover, a maker of gloves. His name was John. Marlowe's father was also named John. He was not a glover, he was a shoemaker. Both named John, both worked in leather. Here's the difference, though. Marlowe was talent-spotted somehow, selected probably by one of his school teachers as someone with intellectual promise. And in his teenage years, he went to Cambridge on a scholarship. While he was there, he wrote the first of the six plays that are generally thought to be his body of work, Dido, Queen of Carthage, which heavily relies on Virgil. And here's where we come to the first fascinating thing about Marlowe, that in addition to his astonishing career, six major works before his death at 29, he was also engaged in some other activities. There's good reason to believe that his student years were full of spying for Her Majesty's Secret Service. What's the evidence? It's not direct, so we don't know exactly what he was doing. Who hired him? Did he have a handler? What exactly did he do? We don't know. We can only speculate. But what we do know is highly suggestive. So, here's what we know. There's a book called A Buttery Book, which records Marlowe's purchases while at Cambridge. Meals, drinks, and so on. What this tells us is that Marlowe was gone for long stretches of time, but when he is there at Cambridge, he has money more than a scholarship student would have had. Where did he get the money? Who was paying him? Why was he gone so long? What was he up to? And then, this is all culminated in this curious bit, he was almost denied his degree. Why? Because it was said, uh, he intends to go to Reims and take up with the Catholics. That was the reason for denying him the degree. So let's look at the history a little bit. This was an era before the Spanish Armada, 
England was vulnerable. England was the Protestant nation that had broken with the Catholic Church. It was not the great power of Catholic-backed European nation, a European nation like Spain. There was intrigue everywhere, and at Reims, which was on English soil, a sort of Catholic training ground had been put in place, a university for Catholics set up by foreigners in a place where many English Catholics lived, English Catholics who had been pushed out, who were perhaps plotting to get back in. So, there's no degree from Marlow at Cambridge because they say, oh no, this guy, he's planning to go to Reims. That was Cambridge's view. A traitor! He's headed there to stir things up, to plot against the Queen. And then what happened? The Queen's Privy Council intervenes. They say, no, no, give Mr. Marlowe his degree. He's done, quote, good service, end quote, for the crown. Good service. What does that mean? Well, Let's note, first of all, that this is highly unusual. The Privy Council did not typically weigh in on an undergraduate's degree status. But one man on the Privy Council, Francis Walsingham, may have had an interest. He was a diplomat, an advisor to Elizabeth, and he was also the Queen's spymaster. He was the one who secured the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, in 1584, and his preferred method for infiltrating foreign plots was to send Englishmen posing as Catholic converts. What was the best cover story? A poor, young student, intellectual, ideologue, one of those people not tied through aristocracy and privilege to the status quo. The kind of people who travel, the kind of people with little to lose, the kind of people who might be likely to question their religion or their loyalty. Converts. Marlowe would have fit everything Walsingham was looking for. That's the evidence. Long absences from school, unexplained wealth, and an intervention by a known spymaster who was known to use figures with qualities and characteristics just like Marlowe's. And with the phrase, give him a degree, he's done good service for the crown. What else could it be? It's very convincing. But it still leaves out the questions, who did he meet? What did he do? Was he suspected or believed? Was he good at being a spy? What were his plans? Did he carry out any actual missions? Just gather information? Feed them misinformation? Did he consider actually converting? It's all speculative at this point. Maybe it will be forever. Let's skip ahead to the circumstances of his death before circling back to talk about his plays, because Marlowe's late 20s, his arrests and murder, adds to the questions. So Walsingham, the spy master that many believe was on the Privy Council, the one who helped Marlowe get his degree, he was Queen Elizabeth's spy master. He died in 1590. If we think that he's Marlowe's handler. That's an interesting event to have on our timeline. Did Marlowe keep spying after that? Perhaps. What we do know is that in 1592, when Marlowe was 28, he was arrested for counterfeiting. By now, he's a famous playwright, and he's become somewhat well-known for his controversial views. Sir Walter Raleigh is a secret atheist, probably the most famous secret atheist, of the time, but Marlowe's right up there. 
atheism was a crime. And here, we don't know all the circumstances because it was also something you could be accused of and punished for. It's like those years when America was in Afghanistan, right after 9-11, paying villagers to inform on terrorists in their midst. Maybe when you do that, you get an actual terrorist. And maybe you get someone who was in the wrong place, inconvenient to someone. Maybe you get some neighbor who's been in some land dispute. Suddenly, he's falsely accused by his neighbor. His neighbor gets rich. Kind of class, sorry, kind of casts a cloud over everything. We know Marlowe was accused of atheism, but the accusers often are unreliable or have their own motives for lying or they're being tortured. They're under the gun themselves. My guess is Marlowe was full of free thoughts and controversial opinions. My guess is also that his accusers probably made a lot of it up for whatever reason. But counterfeiting, what was he doing counterfeiting? The best historical guess seems to be that he was supposed to take these fake coins and give them to Catholics, which could then be used as an excuse for executing them. Forging the Queen's currency carried the death penalty. But Marlowe, after he was caught with the coins, was released without being charged with anything. Why? It seems plausible that it's because, once again, he was acting for the Queen, not against her. So even into his late 20s, we have some evidence or some unusual circumstances that lead us to speculate that he was probably working as a spy. Even after all that success that he's had on the stage. So the next year, 1592 to 1593, is very eventful. But before we get there, and since we just mentioned Sir Walter Raleigh, let's pause and go into some of Marlowe's poetry. He had the six plays, but some of his verse also survives. And this poem, The Passionate Shepherd to His Love, is in many anthologies, Elizabethan poetry. There's a reply to it by Sir Walter Raleigh that's also included most of the time. Now, this poem was published six years after Marlowe's death when it was first published. We don't know exactly when it was written, but I'll read it to you now. Then I'll read Sir Walter Raleigh's reply, and then we'll have some thoughts about both. This is called The Passionate Shepherd to His Love by Christopher Marlowe. Come live with me and be my love, and we will all the pleasures prove at valleys, groves, hills, and fields, woods, or steepy mountain yields. And we will sit upon the rocks, seeing the shepherds feed their flocks by shallow rivers to whose falls melodious birds sing madrigals. And I will make thee beds of roses and a thousand fragrant posies, a cap of flowers and a kirtle embroidered all with leaves of myrtle, a gown made of the finest wool which from our pretty lambs we pull, fair-lined slippers for the cold, with buckles of the purest gold, a belt of straw and ivy buds, with coral clasps and amber studs. And if these pleasures may thee move, come live with me and be my love. The shepherds' swains shall dance and sing for thy delight each May morning. If these delights thy mind may move, 
then live with me and be my love. It's a light poem, very accomplished. Marlowe was praised for his strong line throughout his career. We see that here. Come live with me and be my love. This is English pastoral. It feels sincere enough. Though I also wonder if it's Marlowe just putting on his poet hat and showing us what he can do, how he can write perfect meter and rhyme. It's hard to imagine someone with as much excitement as Marlowe that he had in his life really caring about this subject deeply. Although who knows? Maybe the world of espionage led to his longing for a simpler time, a cleaner life, a time when one could enjoy the May mornings and the dew on the grass and the sheep slowly working their way across the fields and an innocent love. In anthologies, the response usually carries the day. Sir Walter Raleigh wrote a response to this poem, giving things from the female's point of view. It's a bit more knowing, a bit more cynical. Thanks for the nice poem, Shepard, but I know what you're really up to. That's the point of view of the nymph, who's the narrator of the poem, the speaker in the poem. Here it is. The nymph's reply to the shepherd by Sir Walter Raleigh. If all the world and love were young and truth in every shepherd's tongue, these pretty pleasures might me move to live with thee and be thy love. Time drives the flocks from field to fold when rivers rage and rocks grow cold and Philomel becometh dumb. The rest complains of cares to come. The flowers do fade and wanton fields to wayward winter reckoning yields. A honey tongue, a heart of gall, is fancy's spring, but sorrow's fall. Thy gowns, thy shoes, thy beds of roses, thy cap, thy kirtle, and thy posies soon break, soon wither, soon forgotten. In folly ripe, in reason rotten. Thy belt of straw and ivy buds, thy coral clasps and amber studs, all these in me no means can move to come to thee and be thy love. But could youth last and love still breed? Had joys no date, nor age, no need, then these delights my mind might move to live with thee and be thy love. As I said, this often carries the day, but should it? I don't know. I know I thought that when I encountered these in college way back when, the nymph seemed more accurate, more worldly, more insightful. Love me and leave me? No thanks, honey-tongued shepherd. Stop writing poetry to try to get in my pants. But now, I'm not so sure. I kind of like the Marlowe. Just the purity of it. Come live with me and be my love. That's beautiful. It doesn't have to be cynical. Can't we imagine a pure shepherd speaking without secret motives? Written... Of course, by a man whose mind was full of double dealings and false accusations and disguised identities and counterfeiting. I kind of like that irony. (laughs) That he cleared all that away from his mind to write this simple poem of a passionate shepherd. We do know Marlowe could be very cynical. He wrote, Money can't buy love, but it improves your bargaining position. <laughs> That's pretty that could have been written last year. That could be in a movie. 
seems unfair for this poetic exchange for Marlowe to look like he's the naive one. Maybe it wasn't naivete. Maybe he was a poet trying to find some purity in this world. Maybe that's the more difficult position for us to deal with. Maybe that's the more complex one. And Sir Walter Raleigh's is the easy one, the joke. Maybe this is what John Lennon meant when he sang, quote, and curse Sir Walter Raleigh. He was such a stupid get. End quote. But what we see in the Marlowe poem, apart from the subject matter, is his perfect iambic tetrameter. Each line has four pairs of unstressed and stressed syllables. Ta-ta, 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 ta-ta. Come live with me and be my love. That's an exaggerated reading. You get the point. It's good because it's close to how people talk. Rhyme. Well, that's not how we talk. That's the part that feels a little forced. You could say it's showing off the poet's skill. I always find rhyme to be a little bit uh, uh, irritating in poems. Kind of forces you into this sing-song kind of frame of mind. I start thinking about the poet, coming up with the rhymes, whether they found good ones, whether they used cliches, whether they shifted the syllables around in order to make the rhyme work. You see that in Sir Walter Raleigh's poem, the way he's distorted some regular diction in order to get to the rhyme. Maybe Marlowe felt the same way about rhyme. Maybe that's why he scraps it for the plays. For blank verse, using five pairs of unstressed and stressed syllables instead of four, unrhymed. That's what blank verse is. Unrhymed iambic pentameter. It's natural, and yet it still has some structure to it, still imposes some discipline on the playwright. It sounds elegant without seeming too sing-songy or contrived. Marlowe was an expert at it, and his play Tamburlaine was one of the first to use it. Shakespeare, one suspects, was like a prospector who just encountered a fellow traveler with gold in his pockets. That's how, that's how I picture Shakespeare going to see Tamburlaine. Seeing Marlowe returning, returning to the village with the gold, and Shakespeare starts eyeing the hills. Okay, to get a better understanding of the blank verse and the innovations of Christopher Marlowe, let's get some help from T.S. Eliot, who in 1921 wrote an essay called Notes on the Blank Verse of Christopher Marlowe. Found it very interesting. He starts with a statement by a scholar that he refutes. Begins, A more friendly critic, Mr. A.C. Swinburne, observes of Christopher Marlowe that the father of English tragedy and the creator of English blank verse was therefore also the teacher and the guide of Shakespeare. End quote. In this sentence, there are two misleading assumptions and two misleading conclusions. Kidd has as good a title to the first honor as Marlowe. Surrey has a better title to the second, and Shakespeare was not taught or guided by one of his predecessors or contemporaries alone. The less questionable judgment is that Marlowe exercised a strong influence over later drama, though not himself as great a dramatist as Kidd, that he introduced several new tones into blank verse and commenced the dissociative process which drew it farther and farther away from the rhythms of rhymed verse, and that when Shakespeare borrowed from him, which was pretty often at the beginning, Shakespeare either made something inferior 
or something different. The comparative study of English versification at various periods is a large tract of unwritten history. To make a study of blank verse alone would be to elicit some curious conclusions. It would show, I believe, that blank verse within Shakespeare's lifetime was more highly developed, that it became the vehicle of more varied and more intense art emotions than it has ever conveyed since, and that after the erection of the Chinese wall of Milton, blank verse has suffered not only arrest, but retrogression. That the blank verse of Tennyson, for example, a consummate master of this form in certain applications, is cruder, not rougher or less perfect in technique, than that of a half a dozen contemporaries of Shakespeare. Cruder, because less capable of expressing complicated, subtle, and, ex- and surprising emotions. Every writer who has written any blank verse worth saving has produced particular tones which his verse and no others is capable of rendering, and we should keep this in mind when we talk about influences and indebtedness. Shakespeare is universal, if you like, because he has more of these tones than anyone else. But they are all out of the one man. One man cannot be more than one man. There might have been six Shakespeare's at once without conflicting frontiers. And to say that Shakespeare expressed nearly all human emotions, implying that he left very little for anyone else, is a radical misunderstanding of art and the artist. A misunderstanding which, even when explicitly rejected, may lead to our neglecting the effort of attention necessary to discover the specific properties of the verse of Shakespeare's contemporaries. The development of blank verse may be likened to the analysis of that astonishing industrial product coal tar. Marlowe's verse is one of the earlier derivatives, but it possesses properties which are not repeated in any of the analytic or synthetic blank verses discovered somewhat later. The vices of style of Marlowe's in Shakespeare's age is a convenient name for a number of vices, no one of which, perhaps, was shared by all of the writers. It is pertinent, at least, to remark that Marlowe's rhetoric is not, or not characteristically, Shakespeare's rhetoric, that Marlowe's rhetoric consists in a pretty simple huffle-snuffle bombast, while Shakespeare's is more exactly a vice of style, a tortured, perverse ingenuity of images which dissipates instead of concentrating the imagination, and which may be due in part to influences by which Marlowe was untouched. Next, we find that Marlowe's vice is one which he was gradually attenuating, and even, what is more miraculous, turning into a virtue. And we find that this bard of torrential imagination recognized many of his best bits, and those of one or two others, saved them, and reproduced them more than once, almost invariably improving them in the process. It is worthwhile noticing a few of these versions, because they indicate, somewhat contrary to usual opinion, that Marlowe was a deliberate and conscious workman. Then he goes on to give some examples of some lines from Spencer that Marlowe uses, and he shows the changes that uh, Marlowe made, and the improvements, it's it's an essay worth your time. It's hard to kind of go through orally. I think you should check it out, this T.S. Eliot essay. Uh, and you, you'll be able to see for yourself the improvements that Marlowe made, that Eliot is claiming that Marlowe made, and you can judge whether you agree with Eliot. I want to get to another uh, summary paragraph that Eliot has where he's talking about 
diverse accomplishments of Tamburlaine, Marlowe's play. He says there are notably two accomplishments. Marlowe gets into blank verse, the melody of Spencer, and he gets a new driving power by reinforcing the sentence period against the line period. The rapid, long sentence running line into line, as in the famous soliloquies, nature compounded of four elements, and what is beauty, saith my sufferings, then, marks the certain escape of blank verse from the rhymed couplet. That's what we were talking about earlier. The avoidance of rhyme and the restrictions that that gives, but also being able to run over a line. So if you have a line that could be 12 syllables instead of 10, or 24 syllables, you run it across two and a part of a third line. That's what he's talking about. That's the innovation that Elliot is attributing to Marlowe, the way that opens things up, the way that it gives you the power to create a long soliloquy that doesn't end up being limited into pairs of lines. Then Eliot says, In Faustus, Marlowe went farther. He broke up the line to a gain in intensity in the last soliloquy, and he developed a new and important conversational tone in the dialogues of Faustus with the devil. Imagine seeing that for the first time, how riveting that would be to see people talking and still in iambic pentameter, more or less, but in a conversational tone. To see that delivered that way on the stage when what you've been used to is rhymed couplets. Here's an example Eliot gives of, he says, as so often with the Elizabethan dramatists, there are lines in Marlowe, besides the many lines that Shakespeare adapted, that might have been written by either. These are Marlowe's lines, but they could have been written by Shakespeare. If thou wilt stay, leap in mine arms, mine arms are open wide. If not, turn from me, and I'll turn from thee. For though thou hast the heart to say farewell, I have not power to stay thee. And then Eliot concludes, But the direction in which Marlowe's verse might have moved is quite un-Shakespearean, is toward this intense and serious and indubitably great poetry. Okay, so do you get that? He's What he's saying here is that Marlowe, if we can kind of project out the trajectory that Marlowe was on, where we think he may have gone, based on what we have, based on what uh, survived, what he was able to write before he died, that Marlowe's verse was not so bejeweled with metaphors or similes or descriptions or puns or the flood of imagery that for Eliot dissipated rather than concentrated the effects in Shakespeare's work. Marlowe, he thinks, might have advanced in a in that direction in some ways, but it's a great what if. What if someone with Shakespeare's talent and access to Shakespeare's conditions, the stage, the theater, what if that individual had a different sort of tendency, set of tendencies, a different kind of genius, a different way of writing? What if that person had kept writing and maturing and let's keep going? What if 
he had Shakespeare to try to outdo? What if, like Lennon and McCartney, Shakespeare and Marlowe had had one another to try to beat, try to top, to go to sea, to work against? How good might Marlowe have been? And what about Shakespeare? Would he have been even better had he had Marlowe as a rival throughout his 30s and 40s? It staggers the mind. Okay, let's get back to Marlowe's history. We were discussing his counterfeit in, uh, his counterfeit incident, which happened about a year before his ultimate murder. Marlowe is arrested again, this time for something like blasphemy. It's a long story involving anonymously posted bills that may have been an attempt to frame Marlowe, though we don't really know why, and accusations that Thomas Kidd, author of The Spanish Tragedy, which, along with Tamburlaine, really launched the Elizabethan tragic age. You heard Elliot nod to that in, early in his essay. Accusations were that Kidd was behind the posted bills. He was arrested and tortured, but he continued to maintain his innocence. Eventually, his rooms were searched, and atheistic books were found. And he said, those aren't mine. They got mixed up in mine, but they're Christopher Marlowe's. And Marlowe was arrested, held for a few days. Notably, the Privy Council was not in session while he was being held. And as soon as they returned, Marlowe was released. Within days, Marlowe was murdered. According to the coroner's report, Marlowe was in a place called Deptford, staying at a boarding house that other records suggest was probably used as a safe house for, for spies. At 10 in the morning, he met with three companions at a respectable dining house. Robert Poley, a diplomatic courier. Ingram Freiser, an agent of Thomas Walsingham, who was the spymaster Francis Walsingham's brother. And Nicholas Skears, a con man who was probably ripping off Freiser. They had lunch and walked in the gardens. And then in the evening, they had an argument. According to the coroner's report, the report says that the argument was about the bill or the reckoning and that Marlowe grabbed Freiser's knife and hit him about the head with it. Freiser then recovered his own knife and stabbed Marlowe above the eye, killing him instantly. We don't have time to dive into the many, many, many theories about the holes in the coroner's report, the possible reasons for this to be covered up, the different motives of all the different characters involved. We may never know the truth about why they were there, what they were discussing, whether this was a setup of some kind. Maybe Marlowe had become inconvenient for the people who had once used him as a spy, or maybe he was caught double-crossing them. We don't know. It's a little strange the way the, the story of the knife is passed around. Isn't it interesting? Let's imagine that Marlowe had never grabbed Freiser's knife. Let's say Freiser had pulled out his own knife and stabbed Marlowe, but then you needed to cover that up. What would you say? He killed him with his own knife. Marlowe, apparently, in this scenario, would be unarmed. You say, well, it was self-defense. How could it be self-defense if Marlowe has no knife? Well, he grabbed my knife first, and then I grabbed it back and killed him out of self-defense. Well, if you've grabbed it back, 
What are you defending yourself against? This is the kind of thing that has launched a thousand questions throughout the years. We may never really know what happened. Marlowe would be a fascinating figure even if he never wrote a line, but when you combine his personal history with the fact that he was probably the greatest English playwright before Shakespeare and probably the greatest English influence on Shakespeare and perhaps would have equaled Shakespeare had he lived and continued to advance his art. It's fascinating. What a fascinating life. What were his plays, though, and what made them so innovative? We've heard a bit of this from Eliot and others. We've talked about a few. A couple of features here, The Tragedy Form, The Unrhymed Iambic Pentameter. It's a good example. Is this the face that launched a thousand ships? That is just perfection. Here's another. Pluck up your hearts, since fate still rests our friend. Or, whoever loved that loved not at first sight. Can you just see Shakespeare in the audience shaking his head with admiration? Whoever loved that loved not at first sight. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Marlo was also a great user of soliloquies, and I think he can be credited with putting them in the hands of his scheming characters. To have a compelling rogue or antihero or villain speaking directly to the audience in charismatic verse. This is something Shakespeare seized on, saw the potential of. Eliot noted it too. Here's, here's the one he described from Dr. Faustus, where Mephistopheles says, Why, this is hell, nor am I out of it. Thinkest thou that I, who saw the face of God and tasted the eternal joys of heaven, am not tormented with ten thousand hells in being deprived of everlasting bliss. Am not tormented with ten thousand hells. It's like a, a boulder rolling down a hill. No rhyme at the end to stop it. No couplet. It's not da-dun, 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 da-dun. <laughs> That's what couplets are. This is a boulder rolling down the hill. I saw the face of God and tasted the eternal joys of heaven. Am not tormented with ten thousand hells in being deprived of everlasting bliss? Well, 
I'm not an actor, but hopefully you get a sense of that power. Next time you hear someone, an Ian McKellen, someone like that playing a character in Marlowe, think of a boulder rolling down a hill, that these words are like an avalanche, multiple boulders tumbling down a hill, unconstrained. Marlowe was bold, no pun intended. Marlowe was praised for his strong line, his mighty line, but he was bold in other ways too. He had gay themes in his plays. We need to understand the term gay in a way or homosexual in a way that's suitable for Elizabethan times. He wrote gay characters with sympathy rather than treating them as villains, which was bold for its day. We see in his portraits that he himself was finely featured, somewhat delicate looking, just wanted to point that out because it's yet another paradox. You might have gotten the impression from the spying and the murders, the tavern brawls, that he was bigger, rougher looking. But it's been confirmed that the famous portrait of him is actual. He did not look like that. He was a paradox. He was not above stereotypes in other ways, though, even though he was bold and fresh and innovative in his treatment of gay characters. The Jew of Malta is one of his plays. The actual title is The Tragedy of the Rich Jew of Malta. It falls into the anti-Semitism common for its time and place, though it also exposes hypocrisy in the anti-Semites, and there have been a lot of disagreements about uh, Marlowe's anti-Semitism. A lot of it depends on how you view the audience of the day and how they would have interpreted things. Was he winking at them? Was he hinting things? Was he preying upon their prejudices for effect? Was he trying to undermine them, subvert them? Something for critics to dispute. Machiavelli, based, of course, on Machiavelli, is a character in that play and addresses the audience. It's impossible to imagine The Merchant of Venice, Shakespeare's play, without the rich, the tragedy of the rich Jew of Malta coming first. The influence is extraordinary. For years, people have toyed with the idea that Marlowe didn't actually die in Deptford. Instead, he was hustled away and kept in some secret locale. And he kept writing plays, which were then copied into another hand and given to an enterprising young actor, a front young actor named William Shakespeare who passed them off as his own. It's kind of a fascinating idea, although once again, what I don't like about entertaining the Shakespeare author theories too seriously is that there's a often a real snobbery attached to these theories. The idea that Shakespeare couldn't have written the plays because he wasn't educated or because he wasn't an aristocrat. Well, at least Marlowe wasn't an aristocrat. I'll say that for this theory. Some say that the son of a glover couldn't have written Shakespeare's works. Well, do those people think that the son of a shoemaker could? Maybe they do, because he did go to Cambridge. So there's still that kind of snobbery. Most scholars don't buy it. However, here's a huge development. Last fall, the folks at the new Oxford Shakespeare declared that Marlowe would henceforth be given co-authorship credit for Shakespeare's Henry VI plays. 
They've based this on computer analyses of Shakespeare's works and Marlowe's works, and they've identified passages that they believe Marlowe contributed. We don't know if this was a, a real collaboration, face-to-face, sitting down, trading off the manuscript, or whether it's a product of the theater, one or the other, called in to add scenes and revise them and so forth. Maybe different versions of the plays, Marlowe spiced things up, punched things up a bit. Maybe there were gaps that he filled. Did they ever meet? As they do in the movie, Shakespeare in Love, we still don't know. Maybe they worked on this together. We don't know for sure that Marlowe wrote some of this. It's a little controversial where the new Oxford Shakespeare has gone with this. It's still... A little hard to tell when Shakespeare was so influenced by Marlowe. Tamburlaine, The Jew of Malta, Dr. Faustus. These plays set a standard that Shakespeare tried to equal and surpass. Can we say that Marlowe would have rivaled Shakespeare had he lived? He didn't seem to have Shakespeare's gift for comedy. That's one thing. Then again, who knows? Maybe that's the direction he would have headed in. Who knows what he would have written? Maybe he'd have excelled at comedy too. Or maybe he did. We accept the the idea that he was off there secretly writing Shakespeare's plays. (laughs) Shakespeare paid tribute to Marlowe and his death in one of his plays, referring to a great reckoning in a little room. Or was that Marlowe? The writer forced into his secret hiding place, paying tribute to himself. You can see how fun this is, imagining all these, filling in all these gaps of history with our imagination. In 2002, the Marlowe Society donated a new gift to the poet's gravesite in Westminster Abbey, a new stained glass window. They had the year of birth, 1564, and the year of death, 1593, but they added a question mark to the year of death. Was Marlowe really killed at that young age? His murderer was released. Was that because the murderer was acting for the queen, as many have speculated? Or was it actually self-defense, as the coroner states, though there's problems with that, Or was it because there was no body? The murderer, the murder had all been staged. The gaps in Marlowe's life are tantalizing. Last year, the writer John Dugdale summarized some of the more popular theories that have filled in these gaps. Like he was the great innovator who worked alone, or he collaborated with Shakespeare and others. Maybe he mentored Shakespeare, or maybe he faked his own death and became Shakespeare. Maybe Marlowe discovered the secret that Shakespeare's plays were written by someone else, and so Shakespeare had him killed. This was the plot of a movie in 2011. Or maybe, I like this one, as Ben Elton's sitcom, BBC's sitcom, Upstart Crow, suggests... Maybe Shakespeare authored Marlowe. 
Maybe the spy needed a cover story, so he hired Shakespeare to write his plays. <laughs> you can see where this is all headed. Anything goes. The details we do know are so enticing, and the landscape of what we don't know is so vast that creativity is inevitable. He's the great what-if and the great what-really-happened in Elizabethan literature and world literature, and even, one might say, one of the greatest what-ifs and what-really-happens in all of history. He's the great mystery in the little room, the question mark on the shadowy grave. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Kit Marlowe for inspiring William Shakespeare, for writing his own plays. I recommend seeing a performance of Tamburlaine or Dr. Faustus if you can. It's fun to put Shakespeare in some perspective. How much was he a part of his era? How much did he go beyond? If you like admiring genius, you'll want to understand the genius in context, and that includes his inspirations and where he departed from them. Speaking of departures, we're almost done here. It's almost time to say goodbye. But speaking of inspirations, you don't have to wait a whole week to hear more Jack Wilson. His inspirational podcast, Smart People Doing Awesome Things, is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Episode 2 is coming very soon, in which we talk to a professor at Columbia University who specializes in studying the mind. We'll talk to her about how she got her own start, traveling all the way from working in her mother's store as a young girl, to her position today as a professional smart person. <laughs> I'm kidding. A professional developmental psychologist. And it turns out that she and I have had life patterns exactly in reverse, if that makes sense. Maybe you'll need to listen to find out what I mean. That's coming soon on The Smart Awesome Show, where we talk to people who are trying to do something to fix this often broken world of ours. We'll be back here too, of course, with some Alice Monroe. Be sure to read The Bear Came Over the Mountain if you haven't lately. It's an episode you won't want to miss. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.